Amen. <clears throat> well, good morning. Merry Christmas. Uh, if you are just joining us, come visiting from out of town. Um, we have been going through a sermon series through the Gospel of Matthew. And um, as before I read it, I just want to let you know I did not choose this passage, but it, it's, it's very fitting for us as we sit on the Sunday before uh, Christmas. We just kind of landed here as we're going through uh, the Gospel. But a lot of things to say for us as we approach Christmas, as we approach even New Year's. And so let me read the passage for us today from Matthew 6, starting in verse 19. And afterwards, if you would respond with thanks be to God. Let's read together. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? <clears throat> Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more of a value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? <coughs> Excuse me. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> As is about 90% of the, the furniture in our house, uh, it's been assembled by the wonderful Swedish company of Ikea. Uh, and there was one time where I was, I was probably building a, a, a couch or, or a chair or something, and about uh, a good chunk of the way in, I was probably on the second or third to last step, I had realized I was missing this small little bolt that assembled these two giant pieces together. And, you know, that's my fault. I should have checked the, the supplies before opening the box, but then, then there I was sitting on the floor of our living room, sprawled out with all the cardboard boxes and, and the wrapping and all these different pieces of furniture here and there. And I was missing this one piece. And now, when we come to a passage like this in Matthew, we may have heard chunks of this. Maybe the part about laying our treasures in heaven or, or not being able to serve God in money or even the do not be anxious part of it. So we've heard different pieces of this, but have we heard this as a, as a unit? What does it look like to look at this passage together? As, as Matt has been doing, as he's been going through the Sermon on the Mount, 
Are there cohesive units to Jesus' sermon that we may have overlooked and may have only seen the piece and not the whole? So that's kind of the things of where I wanted to, to guide us through in this passage. And we'll do it through three ways. How Jesus exhorts to be mindful of our heart, be mindful of our eye, and be mindful of our body. Our heart, our eye, and our body. And in each of these ways, he gives a positive and a negative command uh, to be mindful of. So let's jump right into it with first the heart. Starting in verse 19, if you'll read with me again. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And we'll pause there. So we can see here the positive command that Jesus gives is lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven and the negative being do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. The Jewish understanding of the heart at the time was not just this emotive organ that we had, but the heart was to define the center of, of one's affections, the, the entire being of, of who somebody was. So what Jesus is saying is not an issue of storing treasure and not storing treasure, but actually what kind of treasure are we storing, right? Our lives are geared always to store up some kind of treasure, always to amount to something. So what kind of treasure are we storing? Our hearts follow what we find most valuable. Verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Jesus starts and he says, he gives us prohibition of of storing earthly treasure. What does it look like to store earthly treasure and what kinds of treasures would they be? And we can tell a little bit more about the incentive behind what Jesus was talking about based on his warning. Where moths will come to destroy, where rust will come to destroy, and where thieves will come in to break in and steal. So Jesus is warning us of storing things like cloths, clothing, where moths can eat and destroy. He's actually warning us about storing, overstoring food, because rust was actually a, a more proper connotation of viewing as, as food that is spoiling in the, in the language here. And lastly, treasures, metals, precious jewels, gold, where thieves can come in and steal. So the wealth in the ancient Near East consisted of clothing, food, of metals, but also these are seemingly basic essentials to life. Food, clothing, currency, money. So it's not necessarily a prohibition of wealth or private property. Jesus is not prohibiting us from from being wealthy, but he's actually prohibiting us, warning us of greed, of selfishness, of coveting. And why? Because all earthly treasure will fall away. Moth and rust will destroy. Thieves will break in and steal. All earthly treasure is temporary. What we treasure, we're not able to take with us of some of the um, seven wonders of the ancient world, the one that is probably the most known and, and one that is most intact today is, is the Pyramid of, of Giza. And I was doing a little bit of research on it this week, and it, for almost 4,000 years, this was the tallest man-made structure uh, uh, throughout the world. And the biggest question that always revolves around the pyramids is, how were they built? They were built during a time that didn't have pulleys or wheels or iron tools. So how, how were these man-made structures? Scholars have, have estimated that it took 
over 200,000 men over the course of anywhere between 10 to 20 years to build the pyramid. But if we actually consider what the pyramid of Giza actually is, what is the pyramid? It's a glorified tomb. It's this ginormous housing for a pharaoh that lived thousands of years ago. It's debated whether the treasure was buried with the pharaohs, and and even if it were, a lot of them were looted throughout history, but just considering the massive effort and the construction that it took to build these pyramids, these tombs, talk about a treasure that we cannot take with us. It feels like our entire lives are devoted to something, to amounting to something, to building up to something. Our efforts, our heart's desires, our life's efforts are meant to to build something for ourselves, to build a name for ourselves. But where does that leave us? What can we take with us after it's over? And so what are modern equivalents for us today? What are our treasures? What are our pyramids that we're building? And some diagnostic questions to, to ask for ourselves. What occupies our thoughts when we have nothing else to do? What do, we, what do we daydream about? Similarly, what do we fret most about? What do we worry most about? What or whom do we dread losing? What are some of the things that we measure other people by? Or simply put, what is the one thing that we know that we cannot be happy without? So it's a real strong gut check for us when Jesus calls us to not store up earthly treasure is are our treasures, are our heart's affections and our life's efforts geared towards what is earthly or heavenly? So what does it look like to store heavenly treasures? Essentially for Jesus, it's simple. Heavenly treasures are spiritual riches invulnerable to loss or death. The difference between earthly and heavenly treasures for Jesus is the temporality of them, things that will not last and things that will last to eternity. So Jesus calls us to accumulate possessions used for God's kingdom building work. Do not accumulate possessions not used to build God's work. Treasure things that we can take beyond the grave. Do not treasure things we cannot take beyond the grave. And this is getting towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, but as he was preaching before, blessed are the poor in the spirit, the meek, those who hunger for righteousness, those who strive for mercy, purity, and peace. Blessed are those who love their enemies, refrain from anger or lust, uphold the sanctity of marriage, who turn the other cheek, who give to the poor. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Guard your hearts from being eaten away, from being destroyed, from being broken into. Now, as we lay up treasures for us, as we pursue these things, as we seek things, these things out in righteousness, know that storing treasures in heaven does not mean that we can earn our salvation. We don't pursue godly things on earth as, an in, as a means and an ends to themselves, but as a means of pursuing God himself. Where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. What are the things that we treasure in our lives, and are they heavenly or are they earthly? Secondly, he, he exhorts to the eye. And we'll read, if you jump back to your passage, starting in verse 22. The eye is a lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. 
But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So the positive and the negative here that Jesus gives is having a healthy eye or having a bad eye. Now, many of us may have heard verse 24 before, you cannot serve God and money. So you may be thinking verses 22 and 23 seem a little disjointed. Why mention the eye? What does that have to do with money and and greed? What What does lightness and darkness have to do with all that? Well, the eye as an organ is the ability to see, obviously, but spiritually it is the lamp of the body, as Jesus said, or even a mirror, if you will. If the heart is a center of somebody's affections and commitments and desires, the the eye is the window through which light comes into the body. The condition of the eye determines the quality of the light and the body that it is in. And so a a very parallel passage that Jesus will allude to later in the Gospel of Matthew is found in Matthew chapter 20. In the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, or many of us may know it as the parable of the 11th hour. The master hires a bunch of workers at the beginning of the day, and he promises, promises them a certain wage for their work. But then throughout the day, at the third hour, at the sixth hour, at the ninth hour, he keeps hiring more and more workers to do the same work. And even at the 11th hour, one hour before the day is dismissed, he hires workers. So that when it comes time to collect their, their pay, their wages, He pays them all the same. And you can imagine the people who were hired at the very beginning of the day were grumbling. We worked an entire day's work and yet we're getting paid the same amount as those who came in at the last minute. And Jesus' response to them in verse 15 says, do you begrudge my generosity? But literally in the Greek is translated as, is your eye bad because I am good? Is your eye bad because I am good? Do you begrudge my generosity? So what Jesus is saying here is that the eyes that we have, our spiritual eyes that we see things, that we perceive things, when we view acts of mercy or we view acts of injustice, do we see them as beautiful or do we see them as something to despise? How do our eyes see things that are going on around us? Beauty is in the eye of the beholder, as many will say. One man's trash is another man's treasure. Nelson Molina was a sanitation worker in New York City for almost 34 years. And over time, he started uh, collecting trash, but he also noticed that people were throwing things away that actually had value to them. That over time, he was able to be able to pick up a bag and determined by the weight of it or the, the feel of it that, hey, there's actually something important here. And he would go through it and take it out and begin collecting things. He was a hoarder. He did this for over 34 years. And he's acquired and amassed over 50,000 items. Things like old books, rare books, toys, old antiques, sports memorabilia. And, and the value of all these things are unknown. And he's hoping that New York City will, will begin to open up a museum for him called the Trash Museum. One man's trash is another man's treasure. Or beauty is in the eye of the beholder. I remember when I first moved, uh, actually before I moved to Pittsburgh, uh, somebody was asking me about housing and how we were going to figure all these things out. And she was a native Pittsburgher, uh, and she was describing for herself when she moved to where I was that 
uh, in New England, a lot of the houses are built with wood, right? And I think it helps with the seasons and there's some utilitarian meaning there. And when she came, having been a native Pittsburgher, came and saw these houses and she said, man, these houses are really flimsy. I feel like they're going to blow over almost the three little pig style. All the houses that she was used to in Pittsburgh were built with strong brick. And funny enough, when I came to Pittsburgh and I saw all these houses built in brick, I began to tell myself, these houses seem very cold and, and, and bare, right? And it's, it's a matter of perception, how you perceive these things. It may be a, an issue of utility or beauty, but how you perceive things with your eye, physical or spiritual, will also, depend, will also uh, speak towards the light and darkness that goes into your body. That's what Jesus is saying here. When you see acts of grace and mercy, does it, does it bring you joy and hope? Or does it cause you to be bitter and begrudging to the one who is giving? What are our perspectives towards the treasures in this, in this world and that of the kingdom? You cannot serve God and money. Do you see with your eye God as master? Or do you see money, materials, possessions as your master? Jesus is very clear. Allegiance can only be had with one. You will either love one and hate the other, or you will choose one and you will despise the other. So in very many ways, a healthy eye is one that is generous. An unhealthy eye, a bad eye, is one that is ungenerous, unable to see the generosity that we have been given in Jesus Christ and willing to, to show that to others. What Jesus is encouraging here is a good, discerning, treasuring, valuing eye that looks towards mercy and generosity and righteousness, that looks towards the kingdom of God. So I ask us, what are the ways that we perceive things? What are the criterias that we have? And, and what do we find beautiful? <clears throat> and lastly, as we move into this large chunk of the text, uh, the body, things that we have bodily needs for. And I'll read again, starting in verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? And why, you, why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith. Therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So the positive and the negative here very clearly is do not be anxious. Jesus says that three times. Do not be anxious. And the positive being, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. 
Now, normally, this passage is referred to generally when dealing with anxiety. We talked about having just pieces of the whole. But when we put it together with, with what we just read, and, and even in the context of the entire Sermon on the Mount, where do we find ourselves? Storing earthly treasures, growing blind to God's grace, and being enslaved to money causes for immense anxiety. Ancient Near Eastern pagans constantly lived in fear because of the uncertainty and the anxiety because they felt like they had to constantly make sacrifices to appease and appeal to their gods. And that's the same for any idolatry that we might face today. Is there real assurance with the money that we have or the success that we're trying to achieve, the relationships that we're striving for or the relationships that we already have? This is poignant for many of us who are married. For those uh, people that consider your spouse to be one of the most important people in the world, what happens when that person lets you down and they inevitably will? Please ask Sarah. She'll tell you many examples. What are some of the things that we treasure, that we hold on to, that actually causes for immense anxiety? The most common mental illness in the United States today is, in fact, anxiety. It affects 20% of the population. 40 million adults between the ages of 18 to 54 suffer from anxiety, so that's more more than likely a third of the adult population. And only about a third of those who were actually diagnosed with anxiety receive treatment. Anxiety is closely linked with depression, so that those who do suffer from anxiety, half of them actually also suffer from de- depression as well. It's displayed in, in many different ways. General anxiety disorder, panic, phobias, OCD, PTSD. And it can concur with bipolar, eating disorder, sleep disorders, substance abuse, ADHD, chronic pain, you name it. Anxiety is a very relevant thing for today as we sit here. So as we bring that closer to home, imagine one-third of this congregation suffering with anxiety. Every third person sitting next to you, anxious, worrying about something. Now, the reality is that we uh, live in a way where external circumstances are outside of our control. There are some things in this life that, yes, we cannot Control. So Jesus is not condemning all forms of worry. Concern is, is okay. We're called to plan, to think ahead, to be, be prepared and anticipate pitfalls, to, to create a, a rainy day fund, sure. For those of us that are parents, common concern is, is a very real thing. When you see your child running across the street unattended, you run after them with the utmost concern, hoping that they don't get hurt. But what Jesus is uh, exhorting against is anxious worry, overly anxious worry. It's been mentioned a couple of times that we have uh, been going through a, a process of, of finding a new worship venue uh, for, for our church in the morning service. And it's been a, a couple, it's been a semester long project for us as, we, as we've done so. And as somebody who is a staff member and, and was sitting in a lot of those meetings, uh, I could say with full confidence that there was a lot of concern there was a lot of planning and thinking ahead and, and logistical things that happened in this decision. But with full confidence, I can say there wasn't anxious worry. I've, I've only been here just over a year, but for the many people, many voices that have been here much longer than that, it was an overwhelming God has provided for us in these 12 plus years that we've been here. 
And so there was an anxiety or a worry about where we were headed, almost to the point where when we had a, a leaders meeting to, to discuss where we were headed and we took an informal vote, it was near unanimous. We knew that God was providing for us. We knew that God was leading us. And so Jesus is, is warning against overly anxious worry. Planning for the future is necessary, yes, but we need not be so anxious that it causes us to lose trust in God. Worry that leads to a self-centered, inward gazing of how we're going to get out of this mess. An unnecessary worry that causes us to, to ask or think or behave, do I really trust God? The kind of worry that keeps you up at night. The kind of worry that, that causes you to make rash decisions. We don't add any more to our life by worrying. As Jesus said, and are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? Anxiety, overly anxious worry, is unproductive. It's unnecessary. And for a lot of us, it, it, it comes out in ways, as I like to call, the if and then syndrome. If I have this, then this, will be, then this will happen. If I have this, then I will feel this way. If I have this, I will be free of anxiety or worry. What is the if for you? Is it uh, a healthy marriage? Is it the prosperity and, and uh, the well-being of your children? Is it the job or that promotion that you've been striving for? Is it A, B, or C? If you have this, then my life will be complete. So then what happens when you don't have that? You're thrown into this overly anxious state of insomnia, of, of paranoia, of wanting to be in control. And believe me, I've been there myself. Consider the birds of the air. Consider the lilies of the field. We are treasured. We are more valuable than these because we have been created in the image of God. How much more will then God provide for you, for me? For us. Now, I don't know who needs to hear this while you're sitting there, but do not be anxious because God is the king of life. He is the creator of the universe. We have been created in the image of God. But more so than that, we are his beloved children. You are a child of God. So if you find yourself in a, in a state of anxiety, in a state of worry, in a state of uncertainty of how life will go, how things will go, do not be anxious, for your heavenly Father takes care of you. Now, being overly anxious doesn't actually mean that we are then called to be indifferent or apathetic. Uh, absence of anxiety does not mean indifference. And this plays out in a, uh, a variety of, of social models that we may hear today. Whatever, no big deal. Hakuna Matata, I'll do whatever I have, but it's, it's not a big deal. But Jesus also knows when he says, consider the birds of the air, birds actually work very tirelessly for their foods. Jesus is not discounting hard work. If we know that we've been created in the image of God, if we know that we've been caretakers of his creation, we are actually stewards of what God has entrusted us with. So yet we still work hard but not with this overly anxious toiling that we do, questioning where our assurance lies, where we're headed. Does God really love us? Do we trust him? So it's not the same as being indifferent. 
If then we are storing treasures in heaven, if our hearts are for God, our eyes can see the beauty of his mercy, we have an answer to anxiety in this lifetime. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now this plays out so much, even more so during Christmas and perhaps even New Year's as we're looking ahead to the new year, as we're planning things, it's exacerbated by the Christmas season. Have you sent out your holiday card? Did you buy all the the meaningful gifts, the ones that all your kids asked for, but also the ones that they didn't ask for but they really need? Did you do all the the advent calendar activities to to kind of be more reflective on these things? As As you're asking these things, as you're going through the laundry list of either traditions or things that you wanna do, is it actually causing you more anxiety or stress? Tradition and gift giving, gift giving is not inherently bad. Of course not. We see the picture of the three wise men coming, bearing gifts to the Lord Jesus Christ. But they do so in a posture of worship, of being able to see Christ as their treasure, laying up for themselves treasure in heaven and not on earth. So the gospel preached here is that Christ is our treasure. Our hearts are to be geared towards him. Christ is our light. Fix your eyes upon him. Christ is our heavenly assurance who gave of his body so that we could be free of anxiety in this world, so that we can trust in the Lord. It's been over about a year uh, and a couple months since uh, we moved to Pittsburgh, my family and I. And in probably about the six months prior to moving here was probably one of the most uh, anxiety-filled moments of our lives. Uh, We had spent uh, nearly more than a decade in in Boston with with a church that we dearly loved, uh, that we had developed lifelong friendships with. Uh, We were still fairly newly married. We had a very young child. And we had every intention of staying where we were. Um, And the thought of having to leave, the thought of having to uproot our lives was anything but joyous or assuring, right? Everything that we knew, everything that we felt comfortable with was being questioned, was being uh, no longer there. And so it was a very anxious time in our lives as we were uh, talking to to Matt and and a lot of the the committee and, and the people that were coming here. There was a very real part of us that was grieving having to make this move. Uh, but I, w- I will also say, and, and Sarah can attest to this, that even in those six months, while they were filled with anxiety and worry and stress, it was also the time in our lives where we were driven most to prayer, driven most to each other in our marriage, driven most to the word. And it's very fitting that this passage comes right after the Lord's prayer in Matthew 6. So as we think about practical implications of this, as we think about what does it look like to practically store up for ourselves treasures in heaven and not on earth, how much more are we driven to prayer? As one commentator put, overly anxious worry and a lack of prayer is practical atheism. We are not permanent residents of this world. We are sojourners. We are not in control of anything that we have. So how much more then should we be driven to God in prayer? 
Give us this day our daily bread. We're not anxious about tomorrow. We're seeking that God would provide for us in our daily needs. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We desire to see heaven on earth. But when we try to do that for ourselves, we only store up treasures that will rot away and not go with us beyond the grave. So practically, how are we driven to prayer in this way? And even more practically, we have a praying life seminar coming up. If you haven't signed up, please do so. This is a wonderful resource and an opportunity for our church to think about what does what my prayer look like, look like currently? And how can I be, be driven more to Christ in prayer knowing that there are many worries and stresses and anxieties that I have in this world, but I believe I, pl- I place my heavenly insurance in a God who would come to die for me, who would know every temptation that I face, but gives me utter grace and his own righteousness. So as we approach Christmas, as we approach New Year's, I'm sure there are many checklists that still have yet to be filled out. I'm sure there are many anxieties and worries that we might have, and especially for those that Christmas is a difficult time for you. As John, as John said earlier before the service, you're in the right place. We pray that this would be a body that exudes the love and grace of Jesus, knowing that we have a Heavenly Father that provides for us immensely, not only in our daily needs, but by, but by giving His Son for us. Amen? Let's pray.